I am Mike Sayers, and um, I'll be your pastor for the evening. I grew up Greek Orthodox. I know a lot of you know that. What that means is my life was very different than most of yours. Even if you were Catholic, you have no idea. Because Orthodox is like pre-Vatican II Catholicism. And it was as much ethnic as it was Christian. You know what I mean? I mean, we were Greeks there. (laughs) I remember one time this African-American family showed up in church, just visiting, right? They must have been from the neighborhood. But we weren't concerned about the neighborhood. (laughs) I just remember them sitting in the back and everybody kind of whispering back and forth and looking, whispering and looking, and nobody would talk to them that I saw. So, you know, they kind of got the cold shoulder of fellowship that night. But we were all about being Greek, more than we were about being Orthodox. I remember one time we celebrated the feast day of Saints Cyril and Methodius. Got a stained glass window since we don't have any here. There we go. St. Cyril and Methodius. Now, St. Cyril is usually pictured in the monk's robe. St. Methodius is usually pictured in a bishop's gear. Um, St. Methodius is usually pictured as older because he was older, but also because he lived a lot longer than his little brother lived, St. Cyril. And somewhere in the 800s or so, These guys were sent by the patriarch in Constantinople. Constantinople, that would be the city of Constantine, the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. It was moving and grooving when the Goths and the Visigoths were having their way with the western half of the empire in Rome. So you got to imagine this... Byzantine Orthodox Empire that is just doing fantastically. And they were actually sent as missionaries up into what was known as the land of the Slavs. So these guys are both Greeks. They're from northern Greece. They're from Thessalonica. When you read Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, same area where these guys came from. And so they were sent up to do what amounts to mission work and teaching. And one of the famous things they're known for is beginning to codify a written language for the Slavs. And so you'll find that these two guys, these two Greek guys, are the patron saints of a lot of Eastern European countries. Czechoslovakia, for example. So it just kind of helped. When I married into a Czechoslovakian family... You know, you know, that I was Greek because it was like Cyril Methodius coming. No, forget it. Um, but we celebrated these guys every year in May. We would celebrate this big feast day. And we had a big dinner, right? And they would have 
poems that the little kids would recite in Greek, like me. I had no idea what I was saying. I just knew the sounds, and I said them in the right order. And um, all the adults would clap, yay, very good, very good. And you would sit down, and somebody else would get up and do the same thing. And then they had this one young guy. He was a deacon at the church. He was a, waiting to be ordained. See, because in the Orthodox Church, you can get married if you're a priest, as long as you're married before you're ordained. Once you're ordained, you've got to stay single. So there's all these guys kind of waiting around after seminary. <laughs> and uh, see if uh, something might happen. He was one of those guys. And so they picked him, the young dude, to speak at the St. Cyril and Methodius feast day banquet. And so he gets out there, he starts talking about how it's more important for us to be Orthodox than it is to be Greek. You could hear the hush go over the crowd. We shouldn't consecrate so, so much on our Hellenic heritage. Dead silence. More we should concentrate on what we have in common as Christians with other Christians. I remember people whispering again. Just like they'd whispered when that African-American family showed up in church. And then he was gone shortly thereafter. I just remember I really liked the dude. I thought he was interesting. And all of a sudden he's gone. Which is ironic because Cyril and Methodius were like missionaries. You know? They went to other cultures. You know, the, the Russians count them as patron saints. And the Czechs and the Bulgarians and the Slavs and all these. Even the Catholics love Cyril and Methodius. The Roman church put them on their feast day calendar, made them saints, and everybody loves Cyril and Methodius. Why? Because they spoke to all these different cultures. And then we get upset because we're not talking about how great the Greeks are. So if you've seen my big Frank Greek wedding, a lot of that stems. It's a caricature, but it's, a, it's an accurate caricature, if that's possible. This is nothing new, obviously. Xenophobia, another word from the Greek. Xenophobia is from the Greek word xenos, meaning stranger, foreigner. And phobia means, uh, means I'm afraid. So xenophobia, fear of strangers. There you go. All right? So... been around for a long time, been around for a long time, and um, actually somehow dovetails in with our passage today. I'm sure that we at Scum of the Earth do not deal with xenophobia at all, right? I mean, it wouldn't matter if somebody came to Scum dressed in a polo shirt and docker pants and, uh, you know, topsiders from bass shoes. Wouldn't matter at all, right? We would just treat them like they were part of the posse. Okay, let's read from Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 20, 12. I'm going to stop as we go along because this is one of those passages where sometimes um, the river is wide. Okay, <laughs> there's a different customs going on here. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, 
Jesus was hungry. I just thought of something. I'm wearing my Greek family reunion t-shirt, which I thought is actually appropriate. There you go. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Now, Bethany, just so you know, I believe means house of unripe figs and dates. Just, it's funny. Just ironic. You'll catch it later on. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he, Jesus, reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now at this point, you're wondering, Jesus must be really hungry. I mean, he's cursing an innocent tree, isn't he? This tree is not doing anything but just, you know, hanging around. If it could leaf, it would, but it can't. Um, but, uh, and it did. It did, but it stayed in the same place. And so Jesus comes around, and he can't find any fruit on it, and then he curses this tree, which is the very first time, I think, in all of Scripture, we find Jesus cursing anything. Like, Moses' miracles are restorative. They're healing, right? But this one is the opposite. He is cursing the fig tree. Never to have fruit again. Poor tree. He didn't do anything wrong, did he? Really? We need trees. We like trees, Jesus. We're from Colorado. We love trees. Trees are good. Jesus was hungry. There was no fruit. And Jesus curses the tree. This is going to be a sandwich passage in Mark again. So we start with the tree. We're going to the temple We're going to end with the tree. So don't worry, we'll pick up the tree again in a day or so. All right. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of the merchant of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Jesus must really be hungry. (laughs) The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. All right. Um, we got Ben Dahl back there in the scoop of scum. Somebody want to go back over there and overturn that table and uh, kick him out? Anyone want to do that for me? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Is Ben doing a service here? Yes, he is. Because sometimes, you know, you want stickers, you know, but you can also go there and drop a request in the prayer box. We have an 
offering bucket back there. I mean, sometimes we have T-shirts. You can buy my book back there, you see? So, are we in danger of having Jesus come in and overturn the scoop at scum? Isn't that a great question? Really? I think it's a great question. Now, certainly, there might have been some greed taking place there. But this is one of those places where the river is wide. Let me explain what's going on. Okay, so this is the Passover time, right? Everybody's coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, the great, highly held and revered feast day on the Jewish calendar. It was the the most holy feast day. It was like Christmas and Easter all wrapped into one if you're a Jew. It's Yom Kippur. And so people are coming from all over the country to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And one of the deals is, you see, sacrifices are going on there for your sins. I mean, Judaism is a bloody religion. I mean, in its essence... It has to do with the killing of innocent animals. Not just innocent animals, but animals that are perfect, that are free from any spot, that have no blemishes, that are not sick, that are the strongest and best of the flock that you have. And those are the animals you take to Jerusalem during the high holy feast day of Passover so that in its death, it suffers the penalty for your sins because God says that, that when you sin, then you must die. And so God gives the Jewish people this religion that says, okay, look, you're going to sin, and I'm going to have to kill you. But I don't want to kill you because I love you. So I'll tell you what, since there's got to be a death to pay for the way you have screwed up, not just your life, but the life of people around you, I'm going to give you a sacrifice system. So you bring one of these lambs or goats or calves or even a a dove to the high priest and he'll slay it and then your sins will be forgiven. Because I will take all your sins, I'll place them on this cute little white woolly lamb and the priest will slit its throat and then burn it on the altar. And then your sins will be atoned for. Because something's got to die because you messed up. That's a, is that fair, Craig, do you think? <laughs> it doesn't sound fair. But I think, you know, it may be a fair encapsulation of what's going on every Passover. And so, you know, if you're bringing something from home... You're bringing one of your lambs, and you live, let's say, in way down south in Judah, and you're coming all the way up to Jerusalem. Like, what if something happened along the way? Like, what if your lamb got sick? Then it wouldn't be okay for a sacrifice. So sometimes it's smarter for you just to buy one when you get to Jerusalem. Then you give that one over. And so, really, to help all the pilgrims, the high priests, the chief priests, the rulers of the land had provided this service so that people could buy sacrificial animals and present it to be sacrificed. (laughs) 
And so they, they set up these booths. Now, now, granted, they're in the temple of the Gentiles, right? The, the, the Jewish temple, you guys remember Dave Mail being here a couple weeks ago, the guy from England? Who was here when the guy from England was here? Okay, he talked about how, um, you know, the, the Jewish temple was set up in like a concentric areas, concentric rings. And so right in the center, you have the Holy of Holies where the high priest can go just once a year, right there. And then next you have the where the priest can go, and then you have where the Jewish men can go, and then you have where the Jewish women can go, and then you have... Uh, the animals, like, you know, who are being slaughtered and stuff. And then you have the court of the Gentiles out here. That's the rest of us. Okay? So, they um, decided to sell these sacrificial animals to everybody who came to Jerusalem in the court of the Gentiles because that was pretty much the last room they had left in the temple. The river is really wide here. I got to do a lot of explaining. <laughs> okay, we got to understand this. So Jesus comes into a system that's been going on for thousands of years. I mean, the first temple was built like a thousand years before the story was even written. It's been going on for a long time. I mean, we've been a country for a little over 200 years. And Jesus walks into this place, and he sees what's going on, and he starts overturning tables. And he starts quoting Old Testament prophets. My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's like two prophets. He's quoting Isaiah and he's quoting Jeremiah. So we're going to go back now to Isaiah, that whole house of prayer thing for all nations. This is what Isaiah said hundreds of years before. He says, Do not let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be a part of his people. In other words, he's talking about us. Most of us are Gentiles, right? This is the prophecy. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations." For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too besides my people Israel. So way back in the writings of Isaiah, you know, God's letting, letting it be known that, you know what, my house, my temple is not just for the Jews. It's going to be for everybody. So what do the Jews do? They put the Gentiles in the outermost ring and then fill it with a bunch of people selling animals. Can you imagine trying to pray when people are haggling over how much to pay for a pigeon amid the smells and the noise and the money changers? Wow. 
why they have money changers. Because the chief priests had made it so that you could only use temple currency to buy stuff in the temple. It was a seller's market. So if you had Roman coins, you had to exchange them for temple currency. And what do people do? How do people who change currency make their money? They give you bad rates. They give you less temple currency than you deserve for the Roman coins that are good every place else. It's like the airport, only on steroids. You know how when you go to the airport, it's like they don't believe that there's any competition anywhere else in the whole entire world. So they can charge you $5 for a sandwich that any place else would cost you a buck fifty. Ever notice that about airports? This is like a hundred times worse. They've got a captive audience here. And so Jesus is pissed off because they're making it hard for all the other people of the world, who are most of the people, to come and worship God at the High Holy Feast of Passover. And then he quotes Jeremiah from Jeremiah 7. But you have made it a den of robbers. I'm not going to read this whole thing. But let me say this. Jeremiah starts prophesying against the people of Israel. He says things like this. Even now, if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here, the Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop murdering and only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incest to other gods and all? And then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we're safe. We're in the temple. This is Jeremiah prophesying before the Babylonian deportation. And the interesting thing is, he's not even asking them to do good stuff. He's just asking them to stop the bad stuff. Like, God's being overly fair. If you just stop being evil, I won't shut this place down. But because you insist on being evil, I'm shutting down the temple. And so back the Babylonians came and they leveled the temple that Solomon had built. Now Jesus is coming back to another temple, right? The one that Herod built. And he's quoting Jeremiah. What do you think might be on the cusp of happening if they don't pay attention to what Jesus says? Maybe the same thing. And he goes and nods. He says, you come back here. It's like Jeremiah is saying, you go out and you steal, you rob, you kill, you murder, you do all these kind of things. You come back here like it's a den of robbers. Like, let me ask you a question. When robbers 
leave the scene of the crime. They go back to the hideout. What do they do? They divide up the loot. They're not usually stealing from themselves. There's honor among thieves. So Jesus isn't so much saying, look, quit gouging people out of their hard-earned cash by overpricing them for the sacrificial animals and for the exchanging of the money. As much as he's saying, listen to the prophecy of Jeremiah. You are all screwing up so badly. You're making this place your hideout. You go and you act anywhere you want to, and you come back to the temple saying, oh, praise God. We're safe here. The Lord lives here. There's an application here for us, right? Because we don't have a temple made by human hands. The scriptures tell us that for us, the temple is the people of God. It's not even the church building. We don't get lands. We don't get the promised land. We get each other. You are the temple of God. And how dare we go out and mistreat people left and right and come back together in our holy huddles and praise God thinking we're all safe. Because what Jesus is saying is, I am about to tear this place down. Verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I'm going to stop here for a minute. This bit about the fig tree needs some explaining. Jesus spoke in parables, right? He's acting out a parable here. This is drama. For the ages. A fig tree was a symbol for Israel. And Jesus comes looking for figs. And you know, even though it was out of season, from what I've read from a couple different people, and I've got to take their word for it because I don't live in Palestine, but it seems that there's like this precursor to a fig fruit. There's these um, little tiny things that grow. They actually, it's like, you know how some trees bud um, like before they leaf out, like the, the bud kind of sets and then the leaves come out and then the flowers appear and stuff. It seems there's something like that with the fig tree. They have these little, uh, they grow to be almost almond size. Things And there's names for them in Arabic and names for them in Hebrew, and don't ask me to pronounce them. 
And I guess poor people would actually come up and grab and eat, and eat them sometimes. So if it's April, we think this is about April uh, when Jesus is coming through here. Um, these actually probably ought to have been there. And if they weren't there, what it means is the tree probably was going to be barren down the road. They wouldn't produce figs. So Jesus is seeing the signs that this will be a non-fruit-producing tree and curses it. And in doing so, what he's doing, what he's saying is he's kind of putting the kibosh on the whole religious system of the day. He's letting it wither from the roots up. He's going to do something new. He's looking for fruit and there isn't any. So he's going to move on. We've got to look at this as the death knoll for the Jewish sacrificial system. This whole sandwich, fig tree, temple, fig tree, what it's basically saying is it's over. Jesus is saying, I'm doing a new thing. I'm fulfilling the prophecies that have gone from before. God is going to make a new covenant. And he says so much coming up in the Passover meal that he celebrates with his disciples. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I'll tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. We're back to the prayer thing. My house will be called a house of prayer. And then Jesus starts talking about prayer. I'm going to read this passage from the message, starting in verse 22. Just leave it out there, but I'll tell you what Eugene Peterson thinks here. Jesus was matter of fact. Embrace this God life. Really embrace it. And nothing will be too much for you. This mountain, for instance, just say, go jump in a lake. No shuffling or shilly-shallying, and it's as good as done. That's why I urge you to pray for absolutely everything, ranging from small to large. Include everything as you embrace this God life, and you'll get God's everything. And when you assume the posture of prayer, remember that it's not all asking. If you have anything against someone, forgive. Only then will your Heavenly Father be inclined to also wipe your slate clean of sins. And so Jesus is back to the prayer theme. My house will be called the house of all nations. And next thing you know, he's starting to lay the foundation in his new temple, which is the people that he's talking to, on what this temple of prayer is going to look like. He's saying it's not a sham. It's not something where you go out and you can do whatever the hell you want and come back and feel holy. No. You know what? If you realize in the middle of your prayer that somebody's got something against you, then you leave and you go and you reconcile before you come back to pray. Because my house of prayer is going to be spirit and truth. I mean, honestly, isn't that why we're here at Scum of the Earth? 
Aren't we looking for a place where Christianity is real? Where people don't stab you in the back Monday through Saturday and come on Sunday and act all holy? You find that here, you have my permission to leave. This body, this group of people, this temple of God. We have been, in the past, a praying church. I can tell you about all-night prayer vigils that we've had. I can tell you about how we prayed and God answered us with a million-dollar building free of charge. I don't want to lose that. Look, we have a giant task in front of us. We've got renovations to make to that building over there, which is not the church. You're the church. That's the building. We're going to have to raise between fifty dollars and $100,000. And honestly, we need to start praying about it. Because what happens in prayer is relationship. It's real life between you and God. I've told you this before, and I'll tell you again. God has heard me cuss more than any being on the face of the earth. Why? Because my prayers with God are real. If I'm upset, he knows it. I know he can handle it. I'm not cussing at God. I mean, that'd be stupid. (laughs) But I'm usually complaining about something in my life, you know, some circumstance. And the Lord can handle it and calms me down. Sometimes he asks me to go and ask forgiveness of people. I remember one time he told me to go and forgive somebody who hadn't even asked for it. And that was hard. Want to know more about that? Listen to my very last sermon of 2009. But you see, prayer is a relationship. It's, it's real. It's, okay, God, here it is. I'm going to let you have it. And then God speaks back, and I have to listen, and then do. You see, a house of prayer means a house of real relationship with God, where he says stuff, and you listen. And you know, sometimes, quite annoyingly, he uses the people in his temple to talk to you, which is humbling because it's hard enough to take advice from an older, trusted mentor. It's doubly hard to take advice from a younger, snot-nosed, arrogant kid who may be right. Still part of the body of Christ, still a spokesperson for God, And if I'm in a posture of prayer, if I'm in a posture of of, of dialogue with God, not just monologue, but a dialogue, then I'll listen. The apostles got it. The people he was talking to in this passage got it. They had this instinct. The apostles did. When they were in trouble, pray. When intimidated, 
pray. When challenged, pray. When persecuted, pray. They did not say their prayers. They really prayed. And the Jews understood what Jesus meant by removing mountains. I know it's hard to believe Jesus would speak in metaphors sometimes. But he wasn't only referring to moving a literal mountain, probably the Mount of Olives, which is between Bethany and Jerusalem as they would go. But they knew back then that mountains represent the immovable. The impossible. Something too steep to climb. Something too high to cross. Something too wide to see around. And this is the reason that Jesus discussed prayer and communion of believers along with faith in God. The more that we pray in communion with God, the more we will know God. And the more we know God, the more faith we will have that he can move the mountains in our life. I mean, this is a choice, folks. It's a choice. How well do you want to get to know God? Your choice. But I'll tell you this, when the big problems happen down the road in your life and you have very little faith that God can move them, probably because you didn't spend very much time talking to him or listening to him. Because God hasn't changed. He's able to do more and bigger and better than we can ever imagine. There's a story that I love, and it's long, but it's good. Anybody here ever read the book... um, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala, pastor in New York. It's a great, great book. I only hope that pure scum can have half the impact that that book had in terms of encouraging people and extending the kingdom of God. He tells this story. This is the power of a praying congregation, I think, or the power of a faith in a God who can move mountains by a praying organization. I was alone in Florida when I received a call from a minister whom I had persuaded to talk to my daughter Chrissy. Jim, the pastor said, I love you and your wife, but the truth of the matter is Chrissy is going to do what Chrissy is going to do. You really don't have much choice now that she's 18. She's determined that you're going to have to accept whatever she decides. Simbala writes, I hung up the phone. Something very deep within me began to cry out, never. I will never accept Chrissy being away from the Lord. I knew that if she continued on the present path, there would be nothing but destruction awaiting her. 
There came a divine showdown. God strongly impressed upon me to stop crying, to stop screaming, or talking to anyone else about Chrissy. I was to converse with no one but God. In fact, I knew I should have no further contact with Chrissy until God acted. I was just to believe and obey what I had preached so often. Call upon the Lord in the day of trouble, and he will answer you. In a flood of tears, I knew I had to let go of the situation. Back home in New York, I began to pray with an intensity and growing faith as never before. Whatever bad news I would receive about Chrissy, I would keep interceding and actually begin praising God for what I knew that he would do soon. I made no attempts to see her. Carol, my wife, and I endured the Christmas season with real sadness. It was pathetic sitting around trying to open presents with our other two children without Chrissy. February came, one cold Tuesday night during our prayer meeting. I talked from Acts chapter 4 about the church boldly calling on God in the face of persecution. We entered into a time of prayer, everyone reaching out to the Lord in concert together. An usher handed me a note. A young woman whom I felt to be spiritually sensitive had written, Pastor Simbala, I feel impressed that we should stop the meeting and all pray for your daughter. I hesitated. Was it right to change the flow of the service and focus on my own personal need? Yet something in the notes seemed to ring true. In just a few minutes, I picked up the microphone and told the congregation what had just happened. The truth of the matter, I said, although I haven't talked to much about it, although I haven't talked much about it, is that my daughter is very far from God these days. She thinks up is down and down is up and dark is light and light is dark. But I know God can break through to her, and so I'm going to ask Pastor Bokestaff to lead us in praying for Chrissy. Let's all join hands across the sanctuary. As my associate began to lead the people, I stood behind him with my hand on his back, My tear ducts had run dry, but I had prayed as best I knew. To describe what happened in the next minutes, I can only employ a metaphor. The church turned into a labor room. The sounds of women giving birth are not pleasant, but the results are wonderful. Paul knew this when he wrote, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There arose a groaning, a sense of desperate determination, as if to say, Satan, you will not have this girl. Take your hands off her. She's coming back. I was overwhelmed. The force of that vast throng calling on God almost literally knocked me over. When I came home that night, Carol was waiting up for me. We sat at the kitchen table drinking coffee, and I said, It's over. What's over? She wondered. It's over with Chrissy. You would have had to have been there in the prayer meeting tonight. I tell you, if there's a God in heaven, this whole nightmare is over. And I describe what had taken place. 32 hours later, on Thursday morning, as I was shaving... Carol suddenly burst through the door, her eyes wide. Go downstairs, she blurted. Chrissy's here. Chrissy's here? Yes, go down. Just go down, she urged. It's you she wants to see. I wiped off the shaving cream and headed down the stairs. My heart was pounding. 
As I came around the corner, I saw my daughter on the kitchen floor, rocking on her hands and knees, sobbing. Cautiously, I spoke her name. Chrissy? She grabbed my pant leg and began pouring out her anguish. Daddy! Daddy! I've, I've sinned against God. I, I've sinned against myself. I sinned against you and mommy. Please forgive me. My vision was clouded by tears. I pulled her up from the floor and held her close as we cried together. Suddenly she drew back. Daddy, who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? Her voice was like that of a cross-examining attorney. What do you mean, Chrissy? On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? I didn't say anything, so she went on. In the middle of the night, God woke me up and showed me I was heading toward this abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. I was so frightened. I realized how hard I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding any farther as he said, I still love you. Daddy, tell me the truth. Who was praying for me Tuesday night? I looked into her bloodshot eyes, and once again I recognized the daughter we had raised. Chrissy's return to the Lord became evident almost immediately. Then he goes on to tell some details about her life after. My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. I hope and I believe that we have striven at scum of the earth to make this a place of prayer for everybody. Even the dude in the polo shirt and the Dockers, as well as the punk rocker with the mohawk, as well as the goth with the trench coat, as well as, as well as, as well as. I hope that you join in this vision and welcome those people here so that we can fulfill what God wants a church to be. So the two questions I have for us is, are we a house of prayer for everybody? And second of all, are we producing fruit I mean, it's one thing to let people in, right? It's another thing to go out into the lives of other people, to be salt, to be light, to be hope, to be love. In Jesus' name. Would you all stand up, please? and Let's hold hands. John and the band, why don't you come on up here?
right. Let's let's all say a prayer together. And while we close out the evening with a few more worship songs, there'll be people over here in the prayer room. If you have something you want to pray about specifically, please go in the room and pray with someone over a loved one, over someone you don't love, and everybody in between, including yourself. Heavenly Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we desire to be your people. We desire to be your temple, a place of prayer for everybody. And folks who bear fruit for you, for your kingdom, help us as we commit ourselves anew to being people of prayer. May we seek you in the morning. May we seek you at noon. May we seek you at night and in the middle of the night. Remind us, Holy Spirit, over and over and over again to bring ourselves to Jesus and to converse, listening as well as speaking. Change us from the inside out. Make us your holy temple for the ages to come. In Christ's name, amen.